Well, good morning. Um, I'd like to start by, I didn't have a chance to listen fully through, Jeremy, your um, lesson last week, um, but I think probably the recurring theme is that because we're studying this statement together, um, again, I think it's, I think it's important that we read it together. So um, <clears throat> I was going to ask, does, has anybody actually memorized the full thing yet? Has anybody the gotten full there? Full, no. The full thing? No. I, 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 I'm staying. You're staying the week by yeah. week. So you know what's up till you know up to now? Do you want to do it for us? The first sure. two stanzas? Okay. Uh, we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh. Um, it's a lot easier to do it in the shower. <laughs> we, we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. Wonderful. And then if you have it, read with me. We'll read the rest of the statement. So Jeremy read the first two stanzas. So starting with stanza three, he was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. Awesome. Well, I wanted to start real quick. Um, Excuse me, before we get into the rest of the articles, um, I wanted to, um, kind of like Jeremy did a little bit, was to start by um, approaching this with a little bit of like a devotion. Um, so for those of you that don't know already, you should, but if you haven't already received this in the mail, you're getting a copy of this this Advent devotional from us at the church. Um, and I don't, I don't feel like that's quite a spoiler if you haven't gotten it yet, because there's a big <laughs> sign up front for it. Um, but if you haven't gotten it yet, you will be getting a copy of it. And so I wanted to read just a, just a small section of one of the first devotionals. Um, and the reason I wanted to do that was like Jeremy talked about last week. I mean, obviously, other than we're going into Christmas and you, when you're at Christmas, you think about Jesus, right? Even, even non-believers, they think their, their mind is on those kinds of things. Um, but it's important to remind ourselves of why we're studying the doctrine of Christ and why that's central to everything. Um, and so I just wanted to read a quick passage, or excuse me, a quick, quick section from this first devotional in this. This is oh, Sinclair Ferguson's The Dawn of Redeeming Grace. Um, and this is in the, the first day. It's page 16 if you want to go reread it later. But I'm just going to read it real quick because um, I think it's really important to start there. So it says, the gospel story is all about how Jesus Christ, the son of David, in God's kingdom, restores life to what it was meant to be. In other words, it is about a new Genesis. Think back to the original creation. In that first beginning, God created mankind, male and female, as his image and likeness. He said, let them have dominion. They were royal children appointed to reign over the kingdom of creation. But Genesis tells the story of their tragic fall from that privileged role. 
Their calling was to turn the dust of the earth into a garden. Instead, they sinned and became part of the dust themselves. But now, as we stand on the opening pages of Matthew's gospel, God is bringing about a grand reversal. The whole story of the Old Testament has been a preparation for it. Now the new beginning has begun. What follows will tell the story of how Jesus undid the effects of Adam's fall and accomplished what Adam and we have failed to do. The result will be a new creation, what Matthew calls the new world. Literally, the palingensia, the beginning again. So Matthew's opening words are good news for anyone who needs a new beginning. That's why his gospel ends with Jesus telling his apostles, who were all Jews, that they were to go to the ends of the earth with the message that the dominion, authority, uh, and the kingdom of God have all been restored. Christ has inaugurated a new genesis in which all who come to faith in him will share. It kind of goes on from there. So, when we talk about this new beginning, when we talk about this new creation, who's, who's at the very center of it, according to, to Sinclair Ferguson? It's Christ. Christ. He's literally right there in the middle of it. In fact, all of this depends on him, right? He is the crux of it. So, probably beating a dead horse, but that's why the doctrine of Christ is so important. As Jeremy said last week, most heresies either start or end with messing up who Christ is, right? If you can't get Christ right, you fall into heresy. You get the gospel wrong, and it all kind of crumbles from there. So there is a centrality to Christ. That's why the doctrine of Christ is so important, and it's why this statement is so important, because this statement makes clear through affirmations and denials what we are saying that Christ who Christ is and who he isn't, or what he's done or has not done. So that's why um, this whole statement is important. Uh, I feel very much uh, blessed that some, some uh, ministry like Ligonier put something like out like this out for us, because I think it's a very helpful resource. So um, if you have your copy of this, today we're gonna be looking at um, articles 10 through 13. So I think article 10 starts on page, <coughs> page 10. That convenient. <clears throat> All right, would somebody read for me article 10? We affirm the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ that in his perfect life he completely fulfilled the righteous demands of the law on our behalf, and that he bore the penalty of our sin by his death on the cross. We deny that Jesus Christ at any point failed to obey or fulfill the law of God. We deny that he abolished the moral law. <coughs> All Would somebody please read Romans 5? Verse 19. 19. 19. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Okay. 
So we affirm that the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ, that in his perfect life he completely fulfilled the righteous laws, excuse me, the righteous demands of the law on our behalf, and that he bore the penalty of our sin by his death on the cross. So I want to start there real quick. Um, is there anything in that particular affirmation that stands out to you? Um, so here's where I'm getting at. When somebody makes a statement like this, somebody goes to great lengths to, as a ministry like Ligonier goes, we are going to make a statement on Christ. Is it reasonable to assume that the words in that statement matter? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, because the intent is what? Putting out a statement like this. To clarify. To clarify or to, you know, state, align, agree, right? So the words mean something. So. I don't know about you guys, but for me, when I was reading that, there were some words that stood out. And this isn't really a trick question. I'm just asking for you. Um, are there any words in there that you find interesting that, or that stick out? Active and passive. Yep. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Erica. So that's kind of where I went with this for me. So what I wanted to do is that, and, and like a lot of these, maybe not all of them, but um, in a lot of these affirmations and denials, not only, is, not only is there the intent of we're agreeing or aligning to this thing or bringing clarity to this thing, but it's also in some of these, particularly the denials, uh, are a response to something else, mm-hmm. right? And so what we want to make clear then are some of these words, right? We want to take out some of these words um, and sort of explain why those specific words were chosen. Or in the case of some of the denials, uh, talk about what the, the authors of this statement might be responding to. Um, <clears throat> so I want to start with the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ. Um, some of these play very well into some, some heavier theological conversations, and we'll try to keep it um, not quite so deep today, a little lighter, but I, I do think it's important, given that these words were chosen with intention to sort of explain them, um, and where they are making a very clear theological statement that we kind of go through that together. So who can tell me... The di- oh, I'm sorry. I, yeah, go ahead. Um, what is the passive obedience of Jesus That's what I, Thank you so much. You teed me up, <laughs> teed me up so well. So what, can somebody describe for me what the difference is between the active and passive obedience of Christ? Does it have to do with the active being that he um, actively obeyed and the passive is that he rejected sin? I mean, the thinking's on the right track. Yeah. Um, so, anybody else? Anybody else have any ideas? Anyone? No. So the active would be him truly fulfilling every requirement of the law. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Specifically, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. <laughs> loving your neighbor as yourself and all other eight that fall under those two categories. Mm-hmm. The passive would be the opposite side of the law, which is if you do these things, you will receive a punishment. And that punishment is, is death, right? The wages of sin is death. Yeah. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So his passive obedience would have been the suffering, mm-hmm. um, would have been his uh, humiliation in coming to earth to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, 
all the way <coughs> until death and being buried in it in a in a tomb. Yeah. So he allowed the punishment to be dealt on him. When I think of active and passive, I think active is actually doing. Passive is something being done to you. Mm -hmm. So um, the passive was he was he allowed the um, the punishment to fully fall on him. I I would say instead of allowed, I would say received. Yeah, fully received. Yeah, I think in that regard, it's you know semantics. You know, it gets it gets it'll get tricky a little bit, but. Yes, you're absolutely right, and you're absolutely right as well. He did allow for it, but he allowed for it by agreeing to it. Right. So it did. It happened to him that passive obedience um, was something he chose to do. So some of my notes here say, like, for example, the U.S. law uh, demands that I don't murder people, right? It demands that I don't break the speed limit. And if I do, there's a penalty that's demanded, right? Um, and obviously it's in keeping with the severity of the offense, right? Obviously the penalty for breaking the speed limit is not the same as murdering someone in cold blood. Thank goodness. Um, <clears throat> but with the law, the penalty of the law is death, right? Um, so all that to say, there's the act of obedience, which is his perfect obedience to the law. He kept every finer point of the law fulfilled it perfectly, but not only did he do that in his active obedience, in his passive obedience, he actually took on the penalty for our sin, mm-hmm. submitted himself to death uh, in accordance to the will of the Father. So, why then do you think that's necessary? Why necessary to make sure that we call out both active and passive obedience of Christ? Let me ask this. Would our salvation be complete if one or one or the other of those were missing? Nope. Explain. You said Explain. nope. Yeah. Quite confidently. <laughs> yeah. Explain. Well, the wages of sin are death, and no. Well, I guess humans could suffer that, but our eternal salvation would be complete without both. Components, both him fulfilling the law to every iota and also accepting the wages of the human sin, the human condition. So both are required for salvation. A lot of times more liberal theology is comfortable with the active. They're happy to say we kind of, it gives us this clean slate. But then it's like, okay, where do we go now from there? Because my sin still deserves mm-hmm. the eternal wrath of God. Yeah. So they they shy might shy away from it because of the <coughs> divine child abuse or something like that, something ridiculous like that. Yeah. But there there's both. Not only do I need <coughs> my my sins completely atoned for. As we read today in the statement, I need the righteous robe of Christ mm-hmm. to to wrap around me His righteousness to, you know, to if my the slate's been cleaned, completely fill that, and there's no there's no point nine 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 percent for me to right. accomplish to satisfy God. It's been right. done. It's a firm and penal substitution. Yeah. It is all about the substitution. 
Right. Um, not only the penalty being applied to someone other than ourselves, but also the complete fulfillment of the law being applied to us mm-hmm. as well, because we didn't fulfill the law, but we gained his righteousness. Right? He became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness mm-hmm. of God. Yeah. It's it's the the great exchange. Yeah, that to Jeremy's point, um, there's that liberal theologians, liberal churches, or or honestly, to be charitable, those who don't maybe quite know the scripture well or theology well, they do tend to get a little squirrely when you talk about the that substitution, particularly when you couch it in terms of penalty. Um, we like to think of, well, they like to think of God as, um, they think of him as being wrathful and, and needing to be uh, assuaged in some way, but they like to think of Jesus as just being completely innocent. And Christ, in and, in and of himself, was perfect and obeyed perfectly, but he took on the penalty of our sin, right? And so that was the penal substitution for us. Um, and not only that, he chose to do it. Right. I mean, he even as he was praying, you know, if you could take this cut from me, do it, but your will be done. Um, he literally submitted himself to that. And so, um, yeah, when I read that, the Holy Spirit reminded me of the scripture that said even Christ learned obedience from the things that he suffered. And I'm mm-hmm. I don't know why that <coughs> I, I'm not been able to make the, mm-hmm. the what what is he saying mm-hmm. when he I mean. That's hard to think that Christ had to learn obedience because mm-hmm. he already was obedient. Right. That has to do with the with the hypostatic union. That has to do with the fact that yes, he is fully God. He is also fully oh, man. And with regard to being fully man, he had to learn how to be obedient. Not <clears throat> not that he was ever disobedient. Not that he was corrected. Right. It's just it's like adding obedience to obedience to obedience and, to obedience and until then the let's, fulfillment let's of the law. Let's clarify it a little bit more. When we say learn, it's from experience. Okay. Whereas <clears throat> if you're an eternal holy being, you don't have to learn. You don't have to experience. You know. However, um, do you actually learn obedience if you've always been obedient? No, you don't actually learn it, right? So from a human perspective, he learned obedience through experiencing it. Now, when I heard that the first time, I kind of understood that it also that it was also saying, so why do we think that we would be any different? Christ had to learn obedience by the things that he suffered. That's why we suffer too, because he... Right? I mean, is that... Yeah, I'd have to think through that one, but it doesn't sound wrong. It sounds wrong? It doesn't Does sound it. wrong. Well, we, we are I, passive in our learning. <clears throat> and hmm? This says that Jesus had passive obedience. Most of us resist obedience. <laughs> <laughs> We're not passive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trending way behind, so this is great. I just want to make sure that we have time for all of it. So if you don't mind, we'll keep moving. Um, I did want to I did want to call out the second part of that denial. 
We deny that Jesus Christ at any point failed to obey or fulfill the law of God. We deny that he abolished the moral law. And my apologies, I do want to back up real quick to your point. I did want to make that point again and clear. Going back to Article 9, I think Jeremy talked about this last week. Talk about federal headship. Christ is our federal head. He, is, he was here to do what the first Adam couldn't. Okay, Why that passive and active obedience is important is because without both that mission would not have been accomplished. Yeah, right. So think about Christ. If he had fill, fulfilled every part of the law perfectly, right? Great. He did that. He kept the law. But what does that mean for us, right? There, there's no penalty for sin. There's no punishment of sin. There's no justice. And so that passive obedience of Christ um, uh, in his... Uh, being the penalty for our sin sort of completes that whole thing. I want to make sure we wrapped, wrap that up. Sorry, so going back to the denial. We deny that Jesus Christ at any point failed to obey or fulfill the law of God. That's important, obviously. That relates to his active obedience. Had he not done those things, he would not have been perfect, and it would have meant nothing for us. We deny that he abolished the moral law. Why is that important? Why is it important to note that when we're talking about the law, when we're talking about... Christ and how it relates to the law. Why is it important to say or to make clear that we deny that he abolished the moral law? We still have responsibility to follow the law. If he, if he abolished it, then you can do whatever you want. That's not the point. That's not the point. <laughs> I think his death would have been pointless to the, speaking about the passive obedience. If he... If he, if he <coughs> If that requirement didn't need to be met, I don't know why he would uphold such a righteous standard and fulfill that righteous standard and yet not continue the in perpetuity that righteous standard. Yeah. No. I think it's also the, something about you know, should send more so that grace can be done more. Right. right. Like that's kind of a thing. Right. Because if you abolish the moral law, then... You do whatever you want, you send more you grace because it all flows back through him. I think it also goes against what the whole purpose of creation was in the first place, is to glorify God. So if things are amoral or immoral, and they're not all building towards the glorification of God mm -hmm. because it's whatever the heck you want to do. Mm -hmm. okay? so. What do we know that you gonna say something? I was just gonna say something I, I didn't I think about with the law is yeah, the law is given in mostly negative commands because it's, it's, it, there's sometimes a negative makes more sense to us than, than the positive. The positive is love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, how does that look? Don't kill them. Right. <laughs> don't, don't, don't covet their, their wife or their, their <coughs> cattle and, you know, all the ways that plays out. Yeah. In the new heavens and new earth, we will be perfectly enjoying all the obedience of the moral law mm. and it won't be we won't we'll no longer need the negatives but at the same time we will be obeying that mm. well by never even having the thought the the inkling the desire to hate my brother mm -hmm. to covet what they have to steal their thing to lie mm -hmm. uh, I will always in all of my life be living in obedience to uh, to God and worshiping Him, glorifying Him and enjoying Him. Amen. I think it's also important to remember that Christ Himself said that 
not a jot or tittle of the law will be mm-hmm. uh, erased. Mm-hmm. Right? And that the law um, itself has a very pointed purpose to lead us to Christ. It is the schoolmaster that says, mm-hmm. you can't do this, you can't do this. Oh, but he did. Right. And so we're talking about multiple aspects of the law, mm-hmm. and um, obviously the law still reflects God's moral standard, but it also directs us towards Christ, mm-hmm. because it shows us that we can't obey, which means we need someone who did, mm-hmm. and then it points us to the foot of the cross. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. My, I made a note. So the Reformed, you know, Reformed Orthodoxy, we typically hold to three uses of the law, right? And those law, and I'll just go through them real quick since we're running out of time. But um, you have, I forget, R.C. Sproul had some cute little words, but I'll just say that essentially the first rule of the law, the use of the law, is that it points us to Christ, right? It's like putting up a mirror. You see how broken and sinful and shameful you are. Um that in turn points us to Christ because we see that in ourselves there's nothing good and that we can't save ourselves and that we need Christ. The second use of the law is the civil use of the law, which is the intent of the civil use of the laws to restrain evil, mm-hmm. right? So it's a general rule that sort of all of creation sort of has written on their heart is to restrain evil, right? It's to put some standard somewhere that says, hey, you can't just go kill somebody, right? The intent is to restrain evil. Um, the third use um, is what we call a, a, the normative or the moral use of the law, which is, I think, why that statement goes so far as to say that. he did not. Uh, we deny that he abolished the moral law. Um, <clears throat> here's a quote from R. Scott Clark that I like. It says, There are some, however, who, as a matter of principle, deny that believers are under the law as a norm for Christian behavior. This is antinomianism. It is anti-Christian. The law is holy and good. In Christ, the terrors of the law have been satisfied for us by Christ's righteousness. And now that we live in union with Christ by the Spirit under grace, the law is a gift to us, and the Spirit does use it to sanctify us. It is impossible for a Christian to deny the abiding validity of the moral law because it is by the law that sin is defined. David says, your law is a lamp to my feet. It's a lamp to my feet and a a light to my path. Yeah, Yeah, I meditate on it. Night and day. Yeah. What are you saying, Callie? Oh, I was just—I was about to bring up the Psalms also. <coughs> consistent with the language found in the Psalms. Yes. The freedom and safety and the light found yes. in obedience to God. Yeah, absolutely. And that is perfect convert in this song. That's right. Mm-hmm. Amen. That third use for it's for believers, and mm-hmm. as our confessions say, we no longer obey out of a slavish fear, but out of a childlike love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's that that's where the delight is. Yeah. If it's a slavish fear, you no longer, you can't say, you right. can't echo what the psalmist says. Right. It's a childlike love. So I'm going to read this real quick as well. First uh, John 3, uh, verses 4 through 8, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now that's di- different, obviously, than that. Is forensic the right word? Just the, the imputed righteousness of, of Christ, right? There's a righteousness, a legal standing that we need that we cannot provide in and of ourselves. So don't take this verse to mean that you can earn salvation through developing some personal righteousness. 
But also, let's be clear and say that this scripture says, whoever practices righteous is, righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So there is a sense in which, I know it's confusing, but there is sometimes a, there is a vertical righteousness, which is that imputed righteousness that we can only receive through Christ that, that makes us um, righteous in that legal standing sense. But there's that horizontal righteous. I think, I think it was one of the first things Ryan said uh, when, he, when he became pastor. He said, you know, let's be clear that how we live matters, right? Mm-hmm. There is a righteousness that we can develop by practicing righteousness, but it is not a righteousness that saves us. Right. But it is a righteousness that is clear, apparent, and present, and asked for in Scripture. So, so that's why I want to be clear that we did that uh, we make that denial um, that we deny that he abolished the moral law because the moral law does have a use in the Christian life, and we don't we don't need to uh, just cast it aside. Now I'm really behind Article Eleven. <laughs> um, Jeremy, just for to Jeremy, I just said we we could almost spend an entire class yes, on each individual article. Certainly could. <laughs> uh, article Eleven. Would somebody mind reading that those affirmation in that denial? We affirm that on the cross Jesus Christ offered Himself as a penal substitutionary atonement for the sins of His people, propitiating the wrath of God and satisfying the justice of God, and was victorious over sin, death, and Satan. We deny that the death of Jesus Christ was a payment of ransom to Satan. We deny that the death of Jesus Christ was merely an example, merely a victory over Satan, or merely a display of God's moral government. Thank you. Would somebody read Romans 3? Verses 25 and 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thank you. So I think we probably covered this um, fairly well in the previous section, but um, I just wanted to ask again, why is that qualifier, the word penal, putting that in front of substitutionary, why is that so important? Why is it important to note that it wasn't just a substitution, but a penal substitution? Even in our in our laws on earth, in in our government, um, there's the idea of um, uh, double jeopardy. Um, you can't be charged twice for the same crime <coughs> without more more evidence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we consider that to be a righteous standard on, on earth, how much more so uh, in God's eyes, who is truly righteous? Uh, which would mean that if Christ truly took our penalty and God penalized those who were in Christ uh, further, then that means Christ's atoning work was not complete. Right. Um, there's something else that needed to be added to it. And um, if, uh, if it, uh, the penal substitution 
didn't fully satisfy or propitiate God's wrath, then it would stand to reason that we do have have more to pay. But uh, if we say that he was just a substitute, it doesn't go far enough. It goes, when you add the word penal, it means that all of our penalty is satisfied. Amen. <clears throat> um, yes, a- amen. Um, 100%. Um, in fact, I think the reason, I, I, may be, I may be reading into this, so any of the other elders here can correct me if I'm wrong, <clears throat> given the denial as well, right, mm-hmm. which we'll get to, I think the word penal was also put there. It was put there with intention. It was on purpose because that's what that's the statement that they're trying to make. That's what they're trying to make clear. What they're trying to make clear to is that that is a theory of the atonement that we hold to, right? That's the theory. And the reason for that is there are other theories out there. So we're making it clear that we actually believe that Christ's substitutionary atonement for us was penal in nature. Um, because there are those out there that don't believe that. So we're, again, making that clear. And, you know, like in Sunday school as a kid, it was like, you know, what da 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 And the answer was always, Jesus! Um, so I think the, the corresponding question and answer here for this is, you know, to why is this written this way? Is because, honestly, having read this and re- reading all the scripture references, um, these are said these ways because it's what we see in scripture. So we see penal substitutionary atonement in Scripture. We see it um, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, the fruit of the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil, right? God, God said, "Hey, how did you know you were naked?" And they're like, eh. "And so what happened? An animal was killed, and their skin was used to cover their shame, right?" <clears throat> Any kind of priest making a sacrifice in the Old Testament was what killing an animal and spilling its blood, right? Spilling the blood, killing something is a pretty severe thing, right? It's a punishment, right? Um, it is a penalty. Um, what do we see in the Exodus? We see what, what is it that, that allows the, the angel of death to pass over the homes, right? It's the blood sprinkled over the, or excuse me, wiped over the doorposts, right? So, I mean, even in Isaiah, when, when uh, we're prophesying Jesus, it says he was crushed for our iniquities, right? So there's death, there's blood, there's crushing, Right, there has to be a penalty for sin. Right, so we see this all throughout Scripture. I mean, I, to, to riff off of that and exactly what Damien said, and maybe I'm simplifying it, but the word "penal," I looked it up, is relating to the use of a punishment for offenders in the legal system. If this is God's justice, the only way to truly qualify this as justice is this has to be under a penal code, <coughs> under a it, it's justice for. Um, the sin that is against his law, and so this must be a penal um, uh, punishment, so to speak. And so that's the only way that brings weight, the appropriate weight, to what this is, as opposed to just a mere substitution. It is a true justice for the sin, or the offense, I should say. Yeah, correct. So then I wanted to make a note here real quick, because the... um, when we were meeting to talk about this lesson and just divvying up the <clears throat> stuff, um, it was kind of new to me, the denial for Article 11. Oh, um, uh, let's see. a book for you to read. Yeah, we deny that the death of Jesus Christ was payment of ransom to Satan. Yeah. Um, obviously, that was put in there for a reason, right? Because there are people out there that think that. Um, ransom theory. Yes, it's called, so it's called ransom theory. It's a, one of the theories of atonement, how people explain 
what's happening when Christ died and why his blood needed to be spilled and how we're atoned. Um, there is this idea that it was to, that ransom was paid to Satan in order to release the binding of him and sin on us. Um, so to be clear and frank, that's literally nowhere in scripture on any level. Um, somebody a long time ago, way smarter than I, but had way too much time on their hands. Um, and kind of, kind of picked this apart until they were satisfied with their own answer. Um, Where did it originate? You know, I was thinking last night, I should probably put down who, where this originated. And then I was like, I probably won't have time to cover it. I didn't put it down. I'll get back to you on that. Somebody long ago, somebody decided that the current theory wasn't, it didn't make sense to them and said, oh, no, I actually think it's Satan. Satan has a lot of power. He's the power of the prince of the air, the prince of this world. Um, and through their own sort of exegesis, maybe, uh, decided that somehow that it was, it was the, the ransom was paid. To Satan. So real quick, I, I do. Wanna, I don't want to jump your thunder, but apparently it was Origen, um, one of the early church fathers yeah. that may have held this. Mm -hmm. so. And what year? Like, uh, like the <coughs> early 100s. Like, like yeah. So early, early, early heresy. AD. So a very early heresy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I do want to make clear, though, um, just in digging through that, um, there is ransom language, right? Mm -hmm. the, the idea of there being a ransom paid that idea is communicated through a lot of our hymns. We actually do see in scripture. So Mark 10, 45 says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mm -hmm. Psalm 49, seven says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. First Timothy two, five through six says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So. Who's the ransom being paid? To? It's we're not we're not um, we're not arguing about whether or not a ransom was paid or a ransom was needed. Right. We're the, the the fine line here is who is that ransom paid to? Um, and so, as you're kind of looking through this, you know, a lot of times in scripture it doesn't say what we're looking for, which is oh, this scripture says the ransom was paid to God. <laughs> but sort of looking through these, I think it becomes quite clear who the ransom is paid to. For there is one God. So there's God, and there's one mediator between God and men, who is Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. So if Jesus is the mediator and he gave himself as a ransom, Jesus was the mediator between who? God and man. So the ransom was not paid to Satan, it was paid to God. Um, I'd be interested in seeing how he got there, how he got to this idea that the ransom was paid to Satan. Neither here nor there for now. What we're saying as a part of this statement is that we deny that the death of Jesus Christ was a payment of ransom to Satan. Uh, and we deny that the death of Jesus Christ was merely an example, merely a victory over Satan, or merely a display of God's moral government. It was an actual death, because an actual death had to happen. And there's other theories involved in all of that that take way too long to go through them all. <laughs> <coughs> all right, moving, moving quickly. <laughs> Somebody read Article 12. We affirm the doctrine of double imputation that our sin is imputed to Jesus Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us by faith. We deny that sin is overlooked without judgment. We deny that the active obedience of Jesus Christ is not imputed to us. 
Would somebody please read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. So what then is meant by double imputation? When we say we affirm the doctrine of double imputation, it kind of answers the question following. <laughs> um, but just to call it out, what does that mean? We'll make sure we all understand that. Because that's what we're agreeing to here. We're affirming it. Christ took on our sin and we took on Christ's righteousness. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's two things being imputed here. Our sin is being imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is being imputed to us. Um, so we want to make sure that that's clear. Since we are agreeing and affirming this doctrine, we want to make sure that we understand what it means, right? We deny that sin is overlooked without judgment. We deny that the active obedience of Jesus Christ is not imputed to us. Um, that's also important why. We deny that the act of obedience of Jesus Christ is not imputed to us. Well, it's directly against the affirmation, yeah. which is double imputation, right. which is his obedience is imputed to us as righteousness, and our sin is imputed to him as the penalty. And if if um, <laughs> if his act of obedience isn't imputed to us, then we have nothing. We have yeah. nothing. We have a clean slate, but but now it's on us. And now it's on us. Now we have to keep that slate clean. Yeah. Not only do we have to keep it clean, but we have to fill it up with righteous deeds, truly righteous deeds, yeah. which we cannot do. Right. So hopefully you're starting to see, which is some is what I saw, and, and this kind of stood out to me, and, and maybe it, it's not a quite as impressive point to you as it was to me, but the, just the language, the, the thought and care, prayer, meditation, and study of the word that probably went into making a statement like this. Yeah. Um, I think it was to a very high degree um, because these things matter, right? And those words matter. What we, what we affirm and how we affirm it, how we deny it um, is important. Um, so I'm thankful that there are godly men out there that would put something like this together for us. So, um, so because we only have a few more minutes left, let's go ahead and move on to Article 13. And I know I'm flying at this point. Um, would somebody mind reading Article 13? We affirm that on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he was seen in the flesh by many. We deny that Jesus Christ merely seemed to die or that only his spirit survived or that his resurrection took place merely in the hearts of, of his followers. Can somebody please read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 5. Delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. So in this affirmation and denial, we're affirming that on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he was seen in the flesh by many. Um, there's two parts of this that really stuck out to me that I felt important to kind of highlight, which is the, the mention of the third day 
Um, the reason for that is that that is consistent with the rest of Scripture, so it's important to highlight that it was on the third day and not some other day, um, and that he was seen in the flesh by many. It's important to note that Christ died a physical death and that he was physically raised, right? Because the, the atonement that had to happen for us, Christ is our federal head. Because Adam failed, our second Adam needed to succeed where our first Adam failed, meaning that in his full humanity, he had to physically die and he had to physically be raised again. Um, otherwise, that wouldn't have been accomplished. So when we say that he rose from the dead and that he was seen in the flesh by many, that's intentional language. It has to be there. Otherwise, salvation doesn't work. Um, the, and so again, the denial kind of makes the same point, but from another angle. We deny that Jesus Christ merely seemed to die or that only his spirit survived or that his resurrection took place merely in the hearts of his followers. Um, that's another specific uh, heresy. I'm not totally familiar with it. I won't be talking about it. Um, but the, in, that, in that regard, the denial there is just another framing of the affirmation, which is that he was seen in the flesh. Again, it's important that we all agree, that we all align to, um, that Christ was physically, uh, suffered the cross physically, died physically, and rose again physically. Um, and as far as the third day goes, um, that's in keeping line with Scripture. Um, we see lots of three-day patterns. We see it... Um, we see it in the creation story, the first third day, we saw dry land appear in vegetation, so you had nothing, now you have life. Um, on the sixth day, you had human creation, so you had basically no human life, then you had human life, you had you know dark to light kind of thing. Um, we see it in the story of Jonah. He was in the whale, suffering a death for three days, right? And then he was given new life as he was spat back out. Um, the prophet Hosea talks about the resurrecting work of Israel as occurring on the third day. So there's a theme here, right? There's a pattern. We see this sort of third day pattern all across, all across scripture. Um, and I, I think, Jeremy, please correct me if I'm wrong. I think Jesus even references Jonah when he's talking to his disciples. He says, as Jonah was in the whale for three days, so the son of man will be gone three days. Um, so the third day is important because we want to align to what scripture actually says, right? It goes back to that Sunday school why are we saying this? Because that's what scripture says. So we're aligning and affirming to what scripture says. Um, it's important because scripture says third day, so we agree and affirm and align to the third day. I find it interesting though that um, in the story of Lazarus, he'd been in the tomb four days. Four days. And it wasn't three. And so I guess there was just, um, this clarification that they, Lazarus cannot be the Savior. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I read somewhere that there was some possibility of not being dead that after the third day he really dead. Yeah. So by waiting until the fourth day there was no question that mm. he died. Yes. Even the even the ladies are like, are you sure he stinks? Like he dead. And this is and this is an important part part for Jesus. His death was he didn't die from some sickness. Right. Yeah. He died from a crucifixion, a spear being plunged into his right. side. Yeah. Many witnesses, that guy's dead. Yeah. They, and the fact that it's recorded for us that the soldiers go around to check, to check, to break the, break the legs of the other prisoners so that they will die, mm -hmm. and they come to Christ. And, and these guys are these guys. They, they do this death. for a living. Yeah. They, they know death. Yeah. He's dead. He's dead. Make sure. Put a spear into his side. Blood and water come out. 
He's dead. There's, there's some theory that says that he just like fainted or something on the cross. Swoon theory, that's it. <coughs> Which we would deny. It's not clearly def- denied here, but we would deny that. And then well. the other one... Um, the resurrection. The resurrection, yeah. The other one, Danny, the, the um, merely seemed to die. I think it's like a substitution hypothesis that some Gnostics believed early on that Jesus like... Was it, that he, he somebody substituted him on the cross, yeah, or substituted him as he resurrected? Yeah, I don't know much more about it. So the resurrection denial that's in here, yeah, um, it's it's important because Scripture says that if Christ was not resurrected, mm-hmm. then there is no resurrection from the dead. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then our our faith is vain and worthless, yeah. and we above all men are to be because we believe in something that is not true and we will not experience this resurrection that we are throwing our lives away for I've always thought it was interesting that Jesus passed through the wall Mm. and then he told um, the one who's doubting Tom um, he told Thomas here put your hand in my side Mm. Had to be flesh and blood there for him to yeah. tell him to do that, or mm-hmm. the, he would have said, where? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yeah, it's important that, it, sort of as Jeremy said, that it was recorded for us that Jesus mm-hmm. actually died. Yep. It's important that we affirm excuse me, um, that he was then seen in the flesh by many, right? Mm-hmm. Because it confirms for us that he actually died and he actually rose again. Because as, as uh, Damien said, there's a lot uh, that hangs in the balance there if that if that weren't true. Because um, he, he, he was resurrected, it's like it, it's a confirmation that Jesus, that God accepted his yes. penalty or his payment and that because he was guiltless, I mean, if, he, if, he, if he'd sinned, he died while he deserved to die. Yeah. But because he had... It's a confirmation that he fulfilled the necessary requirements for us. Because if he had stayed dead, like you said, it would have meant nothing for us. Um, Jesus said you destroyed his temple and I raised it up in three days. Raised it up in three days. (coughs) So even he himself prophesied his Mm -hmm. own return. Okay, well, that, those are the, the, the articles that we're discussing for today. We're only two minutes over, so I'd like to end in prayer real quick and get us out of here. So, um, God, thank you so much for, again, just the opportunity to um, study your word together. I thank you for um, this statement. Thank you for the clarity that it provides. Thank you that um, through these affirmation and denials, through the, through the, the study of the word, uh, the careful um, articulation of ideas here in this statement. Thank you for the resource that it is. Thank you for the encouragement that it is. God, thank you for who you are, that you can be trusted, that you can be believed. Um, thank you for um, dying on the cross in our place. Thank you that you love us in that way. Thank you so much for um, what you've done for us and, and what we get to live in now because of that. I ask that you'd be with um, Ryan or Jeremy or whoever's speaking this morning. God, that you would use them in a mighty way. Just put uh, your words in their mouth. God, open our hearts to what it is that you would teach us this morning through your word. Uh, We thank you again for loving us. We pray this all in your name. Amen.